to the, to the very point of his speech, and, and he says, you stiff-necked people, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. So when they heard this, they, the religious council, were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witness laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. When he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep or died. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Sumeria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So for these last few weeks, we've been working through this speech of Stephen. He's been called before this religious council and put on trial of a, of a sort, accused of speaking, or, or, uh, speaking against the temple and God and Moses and the law, just about everything that they could think of. So he's brought before this religious council and they ask him, are these things true? And Stephen begins this long speech. Well, it's great as you think about it. For this, it gives us an opportunity to hear again the arc of God's redemption as he begins with Adam, or, or excuse me, with Abram. Abram calling him out of Ur, or the land of the Chaldeans, making him Abraham. This elderly man who had no children saying, come to this new land, <clears throat> come to this new land, and I will make you the father of a great nation. You have more children than the stars of the sky. Imagine hearing this into your 70s with no children. So God calls Abram, makes him Abraham, but also calls Joseph. Gives Joseph dreams, later one of Abraham's uh, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. And Joseph, he gives him dreams that one day he would be God's leader. He'd be even leader over his own brothers. Well, you can imagine how his older brothers took to this. In those days, they sold him into, into Egypt, to, to slavery. Hopefully none of you have done that to your younger siblings. But they sold him into slavery into Egypt, where there he was again, he was made a slave, but he rose to the top of the house, but then, because of uh, false accusations, was sent to prison. But there, from prison, Pharaoh had dreams, and, and he knew that Joseph could interpret them. And he made Joseph the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, so that he could care for God's people. When his brothers finally came to them in the time of a famine, and he was able to provide for them food, and the people of God lived on. Well, then the people of God moved to Egypt, and they grew there, they grew numerous, more and more numerous. So to the point that Pharaoh, almost 400 years after Joseph, had forgotten all about Joseph. He had the people, he had the sons and the daughters of Israel, he had them forced to be left out, to be abandoned so that they'd die. as a way of calling the population. Well, it was in this time that Moses was born, and God saved him. In a time when no child of Israel should have lived, God had Moses in his hand. God saved him. Well, Moses grew and he was taught in the, in the, in the wisdom of, of Egypt, but, he's, but God he's made him powerful in word and action. But one day he came to his people to save them, and he, and, or to, to see them. 
And he stood up for his, Egypt, or for his Israelite brother and actually killed an Egyptian. The next day he came back and he saw two Israelites fighting each other. And he said, men, brothers, why are you fighting each other? And they said, what are you going to do, kill us like the Egyptian yesterday? They rejected him. And Moses fled. But God eventually sent him back. Sent him back to lead God's people out of slavery. Because God had heard their cries and their mourn and their, and their sorrow. So he brought them out of slavery. So God's been at work with these people. And Stephen recounts all of this, getting to the point in his speech where he says, You stiff-necked people. You are uncircumcised. You have uncircumcised hearts and ears. You have the law which has been given to you by angels, and yet you reject it. And then he gets to the part where we just read. They were furious. They began to persecute the church. See, persecution is not new. The church has been persecuted from the beginning. Jesus persecuted. Peter and the apostles, thrown in prison, persecuted, eventually killed. Paul, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. Churches persecuted. This is not new for us. Persecution is not something that we are unfamiliar with as the church. Here the Sanhedrin, they hear Stephen. He gets to the part, to the end of his speech, this powerful speech that's hard-hitting and honest. It says, they were slashed to the heart. In the Greek that says, literally, they were slashed to the heart. They were furious. They were raging. They gnashed their teeth at him, growling, gnashing their teeth, snarling like animals at him. And they rushed him. And when Stephen said he had this vision of the heavens opening up and seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God, everything fell apart. This council, these well-to-do men, powerful people, lost it. They tore him out of the city and they began to stone him. No trial, no verdict, mob, angry mob. And they killed him. They stoned him to death. And it said that there was a young man named Saul who was standing there approving of everything. As we continue to work through Acts, you'll find out this man Saul, many of you already know this, Saul becomes Paul, one of the greatest evangelists of the New Testament, or I'd say the greatest evangelist of the New Testament. Most of the New Testament was written by this man. So Saul, he's watching this and he's approving of all of it. And, it was, and Luke tells us that in those days, a great persecution broke out against the church. This great persecution. Saul was going from house to house, arresting men and women and taking them to prison. Imagine that for a moment. Officials knocking on your door, if that, kicking the door down while you're in the middle of a Bible study and taking every man and woman to prison. Imagine this. See, that's the thing, is we have to imagine this because of the place we live. I can't imagine this happening where we live. But there are places in the world where this happens today. There are places in the world, oftentimes in communist countries or Muslim countries, where Christians, where it's illegal to gather together to worship. It's illegal to tell someone about Jesus and about faith. And if they are converted, punishable by prison or worse. These things still exist. These places still exist today. 
don't know if many of you realize this, but there are some who estimate that in the 20th century, there have been more martyrs in this century than in all 19 centuries before that. Persecution is alive and well. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine. We live in this place. We live in Canada, where we have tons of freedom. We're able to gather here freely every Sunday. We have brothers and sisters in faith who risk their lives to gather in secret places early in the morning or late at night to worship God because they're persecuted. Now, that's not to say that everything's rosy here in Canada either. You know, I think there's a lot of people who, who, still, who still respect the church and people who follow Jesus. But things continue to change, and I see even just in the last few years. I hear stories of what it used to be like maybe 50 years ago and how different things are now. There's growing animosity towards us who follow Christ. People are growing impatient with us. We live in a culture where, where relativity or, or what I believe to be true is just as valid as everything else. And so they don't like it when we as Christians, as followers of Christ, say, you know, I respect you, but I believe the truth is Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the truth. That there is just one truth. And he's the one who is true. And we live in a country, in a society now, where things are getting mixed up. What is evil is trying to be described as good, and what is good is described as evil. Things in our culture that we know, I mean, things that happen, it's amazing what people try to call as good. Things that we know that in Scripture, it's not good. You can think about them yourselves. You probably all of you can list off things where we hear our society say, this is good. We say, no. It's not what we we're meant for. It's not how God has designed us. It's interesting, I think about it. You know, we, we live in a time where everyone would say, where people would say around us that every lifestyle is valid. Every lifestyle is good, so long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And we would say, no. God has given us a way to live. We'd say this compassionately and with respect. But we say, no, God has given us a way to live that not only glorifies him, but it's good for us, too. But the things that we try to say are good, even though we try to convince ourselves, God has still told us what is good and what is not. The thing is, our society grows more and more impatient with us because we are unwilling to say that everything is good. We continue to hold to the truth that what God has taught us, what Jesus has taught us, this is what is good. So there's still persecution, and it's, and it's more subtle here in Canada, but in the other parts of the world, it is obvious. But it's gone back. We have a long history of it. The church has suffered persecution from the beginning. But here's the thing. God has given us a way to work through persecution, to work through struggles. I think, mean, look at Stephen. Look at the way that he handled this. First it says that he was filled with the Spirit. Now, it says this throughout Acts. This wasn't just in this moment, but throughout Acts it says that Stephen was filled with the Spirit. You see, I was thinking about this. It wasn't that he just got into the situation. He said, okay, God, now I'm ready to listen to you. Will you please help me? No, Stephen had been cultivating this rich relationship with Jesus. So when the crisis came, he was ready for it. 
or as ready as you can be. He's living his whole life for Christ, devoting his life to him. Spending time, no doubt, praying, reading the scriptures, being encouraged and teaching and learning from others. God was growing his relationship, spending time with Christ, so that when this crisis came, he wasn't caught flat-footed. But even when he was caught, even when when they began to, to rush him, Stephen cried out to God. He said, Lord Jesus, I commit my spirit to you. Echoing, and I'm reminded of the words of Joel when he said, in those last days, all who cry out to the Lord will be saved. So he relies on God. Even though he's been relying on Christ and his relationship is strong, in this moment he relies on Christ. He relies on God. But then also, you know what he does? He prays for forgiveness. For God's forgiveness of these people who are persecuting him. He said, Lord, please don't hold this sin against them. Think of that. As these men are hurtling stones at him, crushing against his body and his skull, he's on his knees, he says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Just as Christ did on the cross. When Christ said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's this radical response to persecution that Christ has given us. It was in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus said, You have heard it said, Love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be called children of your Father in heaven. It's this radical thing. It's an amazing thing. It's this thing that's only possible by grace. Because this is not in us naturally, for us to pray for those who persecute us. To pray for God's forgiveness for those who persecute us, who wound us. So as we face persecution in our lives, maybe it's subtle, maybe it's harder in school, as we face persecution too, when people criticize us because of our faith or because of what we believe, that we remain gracious with them, respectful and gracious, standing up for what we believe to be true but doing it graciously. When people mistreat us because we follow Christ, that we remain hospitable to them. When people exclude us because we follow Jesus, that we remain welcoming to them, continuing to invite them to come. It's not surprising. I know it's not easy, but it's not surprising that we face persecution, that we face exclusion and criticism. Jesus said, who would ever come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to lose their life, or whoever wants to save their life, will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, they will save it. Jesus was warning us. Throughout the gospels, he warns us to be ready for persecution, for criticism, for following him. Throughout the letters that Paul writes, he's constantly encouraging churches to endure the criticism they face to endure the persecution they face. God has given us this way forward, and we see it in Stephen, to be in a a healthy, continuing relationship with Christ. That's something that we begin now, not when persecution begins. That's something that we continually work at. But then, when that moment hits, when that moment of crisis comes, we call out to God, we cry out to Him. And then, no matter how bad it gets, we still pray for God for His forgiveness, 
for the people who are persecuting us. We pray for them. Father, forgive them. Lord God, don't hold these sins against them. God has given us this way to handle persecution that, that will glorify Him. It, necessarily, it won't be easy for us, but it will glorify God. <clears throat> See, the thing is, here's the surprising thing. Here's the encouraging thing. Is that if we will handle persecution faithfully, as God has given us, He will use that. He will use our suffering. He will redeem it for the sake of His kingdom and even to grow us. I mean, as Stephen is here being persecuted, it's sort of, maybe, I don't know if you guys realize, but I, my first time, a few times I read I read over it. He saw the heavens flung open. Stephen saw the heavens flung open. And we, I mean, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We long to see these sort of things. Imagine how, how formative it would be in our life. Imagine how amazing it would be in our life if we saw the heavens open. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Imagine how encouraging that would be in our lives. And yet he saw it in this moment. Imagine all, any of the doubts he might have had. Any of the questions he might have had about Jesus. And is this true? Did he really rise again? Was I just making this up? Or are those guys just confused? Any of those questions have all been put to rest. He's completely, completely convinced now. Everything is true. Everything that Jesus taught him, everything that Jesus taught the other disciples, the apostles, everything is true. Imagine that moment, how encouraging that moment would be. But also, he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. On top of all that, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is interceding for him. Jesus is interceding for everyone. For all of us who who believe into his name. Not only is Jesus just in heaven, he's actually interceding for us, praying and talking with God on our behalf. But even more than that, Jesus is sovereign. He is the Lord of lords, King of kings. These things are, are not out of his control. These things are not surprising Jesus. They're not surprising God. They haven't somehow caught God off guard. He's still the God of, of everything, the Lord of all creation. And he's in control. So you can see how Stephen is seeing Christ more clearly in this moment. Well, I believe too that when we go through persecution or when we go through criticism, we too can begin to see Jesus more clearly. Because as we go through it, we begin to understand maybe just a little bit more of Christ and his suffering for us. We begin to appreciate to be grateful for what Christ has done. I mean, think about the persecution that Jesus went through, the torture that he went through for our sake. And we experience just a bit of that for his sake. We begin to understand a bit more of what Jesus has done to appreciate it, and it changes us. But also, there's the amazing thing. As God, as we walk through persecution, as we walk through criticism and trouble because of Christ, he will grow us. He will soften our hearts, especially if we're praying for those who persecute us. He'll make us more gracious, more compassionate, more gentle. Like refining, like a fire that refines gold. The fires refine us. They, they, they burn off the impurities of us, our sinfulness and our anger and our rage. These things are burnt off 
and we're left to be more compassionate, more gentle, more Christ-like. So we grow through persecution. But here's the amazing news. Here's the great part is that God's kingdom grows too. I mean, think about this. First of all, these, it says in this passage here that there were some faithful men who went to pick up Stephen's body. Are you guys connecting the dots here? This man, Stephen, has just been brutally murdered by, some of the, most, by the most powerful men in, in Israel. Guys who lost it. They were enraged. They lost all their sense of, of propriety, of justice, and they just murdered him. And here are some faithful men who go and take his body. Go and say, we are with Stephen. Do you see what they risked just to go pick up his body to bury it and then to mourn him? In this powerful way, they proclaim that we are with him. The man that you just killed, the man that you lost it and killed him, we are with him too. We see that what he was saying was true. It's right. And they go and they pick him up and they mourn him. This prophetic act that we are called to as well, that grows God's kingdom. Because you see, when we follow Christ and it's easy and it doesn't cost us anything, I, I don't know how many people are impressed by that. When our faith, when, our, when we say that we follow Jesus and we look just like everybody else, I'm not sure how compelling that is for people. But when because of faith, it causes us to, when it calls us to sacrifice, when we make sacrifices to follow Jesus, that begins to challenge people. You can imagine people thinking like, what are those guys doing that they're going to go pick up that body? Maybe there's something more to this faith than I realize. These guys are risking their lives for Stephen because of Christ. I think about it in our own lives. How the sacrifices we make. Those people donate 10% of all their earnings that's enough to, to go on a trip a couple times a year. That's enough to remodel their house or buy a new car. And yet they, they tithe that? What's that about? Or what about when we sacrifice our time? You're busy, and yet you devote how much time to the church or to a ministry? That challenges people. You're going to go to which country? To help people on your holidays? It challenges people. See, when we look different, when we live faithfully, it challenges them. When persecution comes, when people come here and they criticize us for what we believe, even in our own community, when we are respectful and gracious, and yet we hold to it, even when it costs us something, it will challenge them. So as much as it works in us, as people, it also God uses to grow his kingdom and to grow his church. I had this image that, well, as it talked about, Paul went from house to house trying to destroy the church. Paul going from house to house. Meanwhile, Christians had already fled and they were going from city to city proclaiming the good news. I was talking about with Tracy this morning about how a dandelion tuft, you know, the, the rule, when you, it's just as if God just went, and all the seeds scattered throughout the Mediterranean. North to Syria and Damascus, with modern-day Turkey, and to Greece, 
all the way to Rome, south through Egypt, and across northern Africa. And to now, 2,000 years later, when Christianity is all around the world. Persecution continues to drive this. Persecution scattered the church. In those times, God used it. See, that's the thing. God wasn't surprised by this. He wasn't discouraged by what was happening. I'm sure his heart was broken for what was happening to his people. But at the same time, he was using it to grow his kingdom, to start new churches, to proclaim the gospel in new places. When we will follow God, when we will handle persecution his way, God will use it to grow us and to grow his kingdom. I pray this morning that you're seeing persecution differently. You'll see that persecution is not something new. That as Christians we have a history of it, a tradition of enduring persecution. It's been that way from the beginning. There are faithful saints who have gone before us. They've already made a path for us that we can follow. But also, too, that God has made a way for us to handle it graciously, to be filled with his spirit in a constant relationship with him so when the moment comes, we're ready to cry out to him. But also that we would be forgiving, that we would pray for those who persecute us. Because when we will do it God's way, he will grow his kingdom and he will grow us. We don't need to be afraid. I know it can be hard. I can only imagine how difficult it will be. But if we handle it faithfully, God will grow his kingdom and he will grow us. So I pray that you'll handle the, the criticisms or the, the persecution, that you'll handle it faithfully, that you'll walk through it courageously, that you'll respond graciously. Amen.